But up until recently, I thought pull requests only came from your your uncle. Wanted, wanted you to pull his finger. <laughs> pull my finger. No, don't do it. Welcome to Working Code. And now your hosts, none of whom have ever seen a failing unit test, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 14 for March the 17th. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about Zen and the art of pull requests. But before we get there, as always, let's do our triumphs and fails. And Carol, welcome back this week. So we're going to start with you. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be back, kind of. You know, like after you've been on vacation, you just have so much to recover from, though. So Mm -hmm. I spent two days just trying to get back on my feet. Like, my body hurt from skiing and from being in the snow and from moving so much. And then I had so many emails and stuff to catch up on. Yeah, Don't say me. you need a vacation from your vacation. <laughs> I do. I shouldn't. So I really probably shouldn't have Been flown there. home on That's Sunday. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I, I should have flown home like Saturday and then had Sunday to just do laundry and crap anyway. So uh, triumph failure. So I'm going to go with a triumph this week. Um, I know a couple weeks ago I'd mentioned that we started the big effort with two design buddies and, you know, it's a pretty hefty project. Well, this week we got the final and last of the 13 branches out to testing so it's just it's good to see that done and i will say taking a vacation at the end of it has been huge too because i was so tired of looking at the same code over and over again that the last two sets of changes and they're kind of repetitive you just have to kind of keep doing it over and over um but the last two sets i got sloppy with and was just like done I think it's done. It looks done. I don't want to look at it anymore. So then when I came back with fresh eyes, I was like, all right, let me get it right this time. I'm not actually going to submit it that way. So I wrapped up those final two and put them in pull requests and they're out the door in testing. So four of the 13 are out in production and the rest are in QA testing. So yay, yay. That's awesome. But you said 13 branches and this was only something you were working on for like two or three weeks, right? Uh, I've been on it. It's been about four weeks total. Wow. Still in a month. 13 branches just seems like a lot. Yeah. Maybe that's just difference in way that, the way that we work. But Well, the way that we did it was breaking out each set of changes into its own branch. So hmm. the first one was the big base layer change. So this has the big service in it. This has all of the model changes um, and was kind of like the core that everything else will, will need in it to move forward. But then we wrapped three with it to go into production. So four of the branches went to production. Then we put main back into all the remaining branches and got them up in testing. So then, yeah, now they can be released individually um, just throughout the day whenever they're ready to go or they can be wrapped together. And if they hate one, then the ones after it aren't held up by it. Yeah, getting done. Putting a bow on that project. Yeah. Yeah, getting done with that. Moving on to now the analytics the analytics side of it and then i'm done with it yeah that's me Woohoo! what about you tim well so i'll say it's a win um one thing i love about our company is we get these trainings from time to time you don't even know about i, I got signed up for a, they call it an impact coaching training and basically it's where the company as a whole is trying to get better at coaching people mentoring people taking um the next level of leaders and helping lift them up and to get better and so they put me on this now it, 
I wasn't happy because it's like, I'm really busy and now I've got to take like four hours and one hour sessions broken up into four sessions that I got to take out over several weeks. But actually when I, when I did it and went through the material about coaching people, mentoring people, I really learned a lot from it. And what was nice is that you got to do it with people that weren't necessarily in, we're, we're a huge conglomeration of many different companies. And so it wasn't necessarily people that I work with day to day. And we got to talk about issues that we're working on. And we did our coaching, mentoring, training by actually talking about real issues that we have kind of going on in our life. And we would take turns being the, the coach, being the, the, the coachee, and then also just an observer and then giving feedback on it. And actually going through the exercise, which I thought would be stupid and pointless at first, <laughs> turned out to be helpful because going through it, and the person that I'm talking to my issue about knows nothing about what I do, nothing about my organization, but using the, the tips and techniques they were talking about, reflective listening and, and just asking questions a certain way, actually gave me a solution to a problem that I've been battling with and, and avoiding for a, a while. And I immediately, even while I was still on the training, kind of took a little action and got result out of it later that, that turned out to be good. So I was glad of that, that, you know, sometimes you get these trainings and people want you to, you know, bull crap that really isn't going to help me, but, you know, kind of go with it sometimes. And sometimes I actually learned something from it and I, and I did. Um, and also I've been better at delegating. I'm pretty awful at delegating. I like to, not because I don't necessarily trust other people's work. It's just, I like to know how things work. It's just the way I am. I feel I have to know how to do something before I ask someone else to do something. And I've gotten into a space now where I'm asking people to do work on a field that I don't know a level of detail. I I couldn't do it myself if I asked them to do it. And that always makes me uncomfortable. But, you know, obviously I can't know everything. It's impossible. And me being that way will slow things down. So being able to delegate and seeing good results coming back, this is both from an internal employee where he's got a skill set that I totally don't have and I'm delegating it to him and he's he's getting it done and I'm reviewing it and I know he's getting it done and that makes me very happy. But also we have an offshore team that um, they've done amazing work and seeing what they're doing and I know very little about what they're doing, but I, I can understand what they're supposed to do and they're getting it done. And so I can see the benefits of doing more delegation so that I can focus on my priorities. I'm happy that I'm learning those things, even, you know, as late in the game as Mm -hmm. it might be for me. (laughs) I was about to say that the delegating side is something that I've struggled with forever because I feel like I'm the seagulls and Nemo and I'm going, mine, 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 mine. Like, this is mine. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I want to, yeah, I want to know, like, everything. And it's, it's not that I want to be, I don't want my name on it. I just want the knowledge of all of it. I want to know how it all worked, how it impacted everything. But as I've gotten older, I have realized that sometimes it's okay to just hand that one off and know that at the end of it, you'll get the understanding. You didn't have to be involved with every step along the way. And it's okay to just learn at the end and not be involved so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, the same way. It's it's, it's not that, like I said, I don't, it's not that I don't trust people to get stuff done. I know. I my I come from the viewpoint that I think most people really want to do good work. Yeah. And if they don't do good work, it's because they don't know how or they're not empowered they're not given the tools to do so. But at the same time, it's like if I see something really cool, I want to take it apart. I want to know how right. it works. Yep. I, I, I you know, I get that thrill from from breaking the puzzle apart. And I'm not able to do that when I delegate, right? I have to leave that joy to someone else and I get jealous. Yep. You have to go work on your spreadsheets and do some number things and someone else tears it apart. I mean, I'm still I'm coding on other stuff. It's just we got so many things going on. I can't 
you know, it's like I can't yeah. have my finger in all of it. I just got to set self on yeah. autopilot for other folks and just make sure they do it. So good. that's good. That's me. What about you, Ben, buddy? So this week I have a triumph, but it's it's more of a nostalgic triumph than it is anything else. And uh, I was thinking back to, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And when I was really starting to learn more about computer science and about designing applications, but but still really living in a world where everything that I was building was fairly simple. And I was thinking about how you could build things that were more complex. And I had always been fascinated all my life with how amazing the human body is and and the systems that work in the human body and just how clever they are and, and resilient. And I remember thinking at one point, like, oh, imagine if you could build an application that worked like a human system where you have these disconnected parts like cells and they're communicating through hormones and you have uh, neurons and, and you have the neuroreceptors and, and things were, you know, not necessarily having to all happen at the same time. And body was always sort of catching up with itself and it was regenerating and handling errors and so on and so forth. And I was like, this is the, the human body is so beautiful as a system. And, and I remember at the time thinking like, oh, you could never build a computer system like that. I mean, that's <laughs> absurd, the complexity. And now jump forward like 15 years yep. and I'm thinking about, you know, things like Kafka and event streams and eventual consistency and horizontally scaled systems that have redundancy. And I'm like, oh, wait, I was like actually kind of on point with how I was thinking about complex systems, but I didn't even, I didn't have the, the, the wherewithal to understand that how you would even translate that into a technical setting. So my triumph is more that I, I had a good instinct for something years ago, even though I dismissed it. And I'm just, I'm kind of proud of the fact that my mind could even go there, given the fact that I had never even built a system like that. And the systems weren't there then either. So it wasn't like you were dreaming on someone else's dream then. You were absolutely thinking in your own thought about it. I do think it's cool though that the comparison between programming and, and organic organisms because I mean you think about it all life runs off of a code of DNA. Right. DNA is really just coding. Mm-hmm. AGCTs, I mean it's it's just it's a combination of of codes in a helix pattern and every living thing ba- is based off that that one code set is the operating system that everything from slime mold to bacteria, to monkeys, to whales, to humans, all of us are running on that same code set. And that's just fascinating to me. It is fascinating. How about you, Adam? What do you got going on this week? Uh, well, this week I have a triumph. Uh, earlier this week, just a couple of days ago, actually, uh, was my nine-year anniversary working for Alumni Q. Happy nice. anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. This was the longest I'd ever worked for any single company when it was my four-year anniversary. So I've been here for a long damn time. This, I've been at this company for more than half of my marriage. And it's just the thing I think that amazes me the most about it is that I haven't gotten the itch to leave. There have been times when I've been frustrated, but almost every time I've ever quit a job, it's because it's been boring. And, you know, like you get, I finally work into that rut of like, I'm just making forms, right? Write some CRUD data into the database and write some reports back out and you just do that over and over ad nauseum yep. and this job has finally been just non-stop challenge you know previous jobs there's always been time to slack off and you know you worry about looking busy and this job i am legitimately busy from five minutes before i get to my desk every morning until i'm able to drag myself away from my desk in the afternoon and it's fun and it's challenging and there's some interesting technical problems and it's just, it's been a wonderful ride and I'm really looking forward to the next nine years. Congratulations. It's it's a healthy busy, right? You'd say it's like a healthy level of 
Yeah, like 90% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are those times when you're so busy that you just can't do anything else. And after Mm -hmm. repeating that over and over again, you need some time to slack off a little and learn something and sit back and relax and enjoy what you're doing. Well, congratulations, man. Thank you. Yeah, that is awesome. Something you said reminded me of my father who who, he passed away like 10 years ago or something. Mm. Not good with dates. But I remember when I was a kid, we got into this pickup truck that we had. It was an old pickup truck that we didn't really use very much. And I remember we got in and we had to turn the windshield wipers on and the rubber blade on the windshield wiper just like ripped off. (laughs) And I remember asking my dad, why would it break? We never used the car. And he looked at me and he said, in life, things suffer more from disuse than they do from overuse. And just this idea of only wanting to quit jobs because they're boring and not wanting to quit when you're almost overtaxed. I think what he said sort of makes sense in a lot of different contexts. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you're getting out of the job. And what you find rewarding. I had So I've been doing interviews this week, not for me for a job, but I'm interviewing, a, a, hiring a salesperson to sell our product. And one of them asked me an interesting question. He asked me, how do you reward your people? And my immediate answer was, I reward them with what they value. And I said, let me explain that. I said, if you offered me more money, it would not motivate me. No. As long as I'm making a decent wage, I'm happy. What makes me happy, what grinds my gears and gets me out of bed in the morning is a challenge. It's something exciting, something new, something, you know, I want to build stuff. Right. You, if you say, Tim, you can make $10,000 more if you do this, this, and this, I'll be like, keep your $10,000. I'm not interested because what you just offered me is boring. And now, this person was mo- definitely, I mean, he's a sales guy. He was motivated by money. I said, I, I'm going to assume you're motivated by money. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to find out what it is that you're looking to get and I'll reward you with that. And if it's, you know, a commission schedule that's going to make you work harder, then I'm going to do that. I said, but if that's not what motivates you, I'm going to find what it is. And I'm going to offer you that. Tacos. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it, what, what Ben was saying, you know, it's like you suffer more from disuse than overuse. Right. Yep. If what motivates you in your life is not being used enough in your work, you're going to want to quit. Mm-hmm. They could say, well, we'll offer you more money. Well, no, I don't want to do forms every day for more money. I'm going to find something more interesting. So I'm very proud of you and happy that you're excelling in what you're doing and loving it. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> and the tacos was for real, by the way. Like, I miss that. Just not fish tacos, right? No, I'm allergic to fish. And dear God, Adam. Uh, That's why I said that. That's gross. Sorry, just as a quick aside. I didn't know that fish tacos were a real thing. (laughs) And my... My wife was always talking about fish tacos when we first got together. And she's like, oh, yeah, you know, we go to this place. They make good fish tacos. Or she would talk about, I don't know, she she brought it up a bunch of times. I never seen her eat one. And then we were at a restaurant and she finally ordered a fish taco. And I was blown away. I was like, wait a minute. Have you not been joking all this time? <laughs> I just assume fish taco is like. It sounded Dirty so gross to me. <laughs> so I want to hear Carol's taco. What's the taco draw here for you? Oh, yeah. So when I was at Silvervine, every uh-huh. Thursday or well, I think it was Wednesdays or Thursdays, either myself, Scotty, Daniel, or David uh-huh. would go by and buy bags of tacos from the local taco place, the Tacos uh, and More. I do remember that. Those things are valuable to me. Like the, mm. the, the family connection you get knowing that on Thursday, someone's going to have a taco on your desk for you. And in a couple Thursdays, you're going to put tacos on everybody's desk, like because you love the people you're with. That's not, I wouldn't walk away for $10,000. Like that's not even close to that. I want those connections with people. That's cool. All right. Well, I guess let's move into our topic. So today we're going to talk about pull requests and we we almost called this episode Ben's pull request commandments. (laughs) The holy grail of pull requests. 
He has them written on stone tablets. I have yeah. some feelings about stuff. I mean, if that's, you know, we're on episode 13. 14. 14. 14. Did you sleep and, through uh, one or something? Oh, this is 14. I was, you know, in the in the bag. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I have some feelings about some things. And pull request happens to be one of those things that I have a lot of feelings about. And it's only, I think, from having worked with a variety of teams and having been building pull requests for the last 10 years. So before we get into the details of feelings on pull requests, maybe we should start with what is a pull request for people who haven't had the pleasure of using GitHub? Because I'm sure that there's plenty of them out there. Pull my finger and find out. (laughs) (laughs) Insert fart sounds. So the way Git works is that you have multiple branches of work with one primary branch. And the primary branch is typically the thing that's in production. At least that's the way we work where I am. And a pull request is essentially a, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Someone take a stab at this. Yeah. So the way that I view a pull request is kind of the opposite of what the word is. So when I think of a pull request, it's pushing my code up, Mm, ready to go in. So it's saying, Hey, I have came off of production or wherever we started from, and I've done this work. And now wherever my starting point was, usually wherever my starting point was, I'm ready to put my work back into it. So I'm doing a pull request to push my code into the production branch, if that's what we want to call it. But it's the stepping point before it actually goes in to go through the checks that are in place for the team I'm on whether that's a code review or that's build reviews, like whatever we have going on with it, it's that point to say, okay, we need some some people to go sign off and say this pull request is ready to go in. And then once it is, it merges in. So I've always like been like, why do we call it a pull request if I'm going to push my code up? Like, it shouldn't be called pull, but anyways, that's just my little sidebox thing. So prior to GitHub and not unique to Git, when you would make changes, you know, work in a branch or whatever in Git parlance, we'll just stick with that. So if I'm over in my fork and I make some changes and I commit those to my branch, when I want them to end up in your fork or the production server's fork, then what you do is you generate a patch file and it basically is like the output of Git diff. Okay in a file with so it's got some context it's got your changes and that way you can apply that patch and it makes those same modifications in a predictable deterministic way to the same files and prior to there being like github you would email those patch files around and say okay here's my changes you can apply them locally and see what i've done and you you would have this email thread back and forth where you might have a discussion or you might do a digital code review sort of thing and so pull requests i think started as a way to give a a web ui to that process so instead of exchanging all those patch files over email you would push your patch up to github and there would be a page where you can view the diff and you can have comments and you can comment on specific lines of code and over time it has grown and there's things like you're talking about the um, tests running or whatever other processes happening sort of inline all and it kind of streamlines a bunch of different things all into one location mm-hmm. and it, it for me the sort of killer feature of pull requests and the reason we started using them in the first place was to have that central place for code reviews yep yeah if i could kind of distill it down to a phrase i call them i, I think of them as curated merges so you have someone who is in charge of curating the repository and you have all these other people who are saying do this do this do this and each pro request someone curates those and through some process decides yes this is this is worthy of coming into the fold this one needs a little work 
This one is completely out. That's the simplest way I, th- I think of it. It's really just a merge. Ultimately, you're, you're taking a change of code and putting it on another code set. But someone is in the middle or some process is in the middle that decides, does this deserve to be in here? Has it passed the proof that it belongs here? Because these are used by open source projects. These are used by internal projects. These are used by a, a lot of people. So one thing that's interesting hearing you guys talk about Git and pull requests and Adam talking about mailing patches around. When I think about Git, I'm thinking thinking about Git and GitHub. Mm. I, I don't think about Git on its own. Right. Other than the low level, how do I change branches and merge things and rebase and stuff? But my entire way to consume Git is both locally and with GitHub. I don't think I have a Git workflow that works without GitHub. And I think that's a good preface for this conversation because everything I'm about to say is from the perspective of Git plus GitHub. I have no idea how all of this would translate if you were working with something other than Git and GitHub. So your mileage may vary. Yeah, I was going to say we use Bitbucket. So I still use everything I know from Git, GitHub, Git terminal. Like I use all my terminal command line is everything I know from Git still. Just my interface with Bitbucket is slightly different. Um, It's not as pretty as GitHub, but I still have those same thoughts with how I function in the GitHub world just on Bitbucket. Yeah, if you're using some online central repository of one source of truth for your GitHub repository, your mileage is going to be the same. I, I doubt anyone originally Git. Yes, you, it was completely distributed. You didn't have to have a central point. Um, people could all have their repositories, and they could, like Adam was saying, you could send stuff between each other and merge them. Mm-hmm. But what has become the de facto standard yeah. is you subscribe to a service like Atlassian or GitHub, and you use that service. Uh, so it's no longer truly fully distributed because if GitHub goes down, you're not going to work that day. Right. Right. right? Snow day. <laughs> that does remind me of another detail, though, which is that, like you were saying, there's it's before there was GitHub, there was just Git and people had their own clones of a repository. And that is where the pull request comes from. So so with Git, you can have multiple what they call remotes. So instead of having like a central um, GitHub. You would just, you know, the four of us would all have our local Git repo and you could set up a, a remote mm-hmm. alias. So I could have one named Tim, one named Carol, one named Ben. And then you can pull from somebody else's, like I can pull from Ben's main into my main or from Carol's feature branch into my main or to, to my feature branch, whatever. So you can pull from them mm-hmm. to you. And I think that that is pull where request. pull request mm-hmm. comes ah. from. So you're saying, okay, this code is done and it's in my local. Here's all the details you need to know if you want to pull it into yours, which is in the de facto case, the central hub. These these are back in Linus Torvalds days, early Linux source control days. So, Ben, how are we all doing them wrong? (laughs) (laughs) This is no one's doing it wrong. So it's actually and that's a very interesting note talking about how I am both very strongly opinionated about certain things. But then at the same time, I try not to force that opinion on anybody. Strong opinions weekly held, right? Right. So going back to conversations from previous episodes where I always feel very strongly about syntax, but I Mm -hmm. don't use a linter or a common formatter because my feelings are my feelings. With pull requests, I have very strong feelings about pull requests, but at the same time, we don't have like a change control board or a GitHub pull request template because like my feelings are not necessarily your feelings. And again, your mileage may vary, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So my preparation for this show is 
is I just started writing down a list and I had it in Trello and I just kept adding to it as things popped into my head throughout the day. So we'll go through the list, I guess, one item at a time. Sure. These are in no particular order. How many items are there? What are we talking about? Scroll, 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 scroll. Maybe we should put them in order. <laughs> it's too complicated. <laughs> All right. So let's just kick it off. Let's just one time kick it. Do it. All right. Number one, always look at your diff in more than one context, meaning look at it on your command line. Look at it in a GitHub pull request context. Look at it in two different unique formatting, because this is like going back to when you used to write papers in school and your teacher would be like, print it out and then read it on paper, because reading it back on the computer is not the same. Your brain's not processing things the same way it is is when you print it out and you read it back on paper. And I look at a pull request the same way. If I do git diff on the command line, I'm thinking about the code changes in one way. And then if I push it up to GitHub and I create a pull request, I then go and I look at that same diff on GitHub. And that allows me to look at it in a different context and allows my brain to catch different things like typos or things that I suddenly realize, oh, I should change this code around things that I didn't necessarily see in the command line. So, wow, I did not see this one coming. Oh, I've got a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Buckle in, Tim. (laughs) Buckle up, boys. It's a bumpy ride. And and I, I guess, and I don't know if there's any way to not look at it in more than one context. I will say that having interacted with some people, I think there are those that will create the PR and just throw it over the fence and not actually review their own PR. And I think you're leaving money on the table when you do that. Tim's raising his hand. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, Ben. I use SourceTree. That's my favorite. That's my go-to. So I start in SourceTree and then I push my branch up and then I go to start the pull request in Bitbucket. So I don't do it in any code editor. I actually go to the Bitbucket you know, UI. I go to the interface and I um, start my pull request there and I read it again. And my big thing that I usually catch on my own is that I'll have tabs and space errors and all of yeah, a sudden... Mm-hmm. It, I can see where I copy the line up from something and now mine's tabs and the rest of the file is spaces and I have to make the decision on do I go change mine or tab the whole damn file over. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm going to do one and then undo and let it just check it all in. I'm like, oh, then everyone's going to see this whole file change for one line and then I go back in and put the spaces in. If you had white space characters on, that's true. You it. Caught it Actually, I place. just turned that on yesterday. So it's the bee's pajamas. Okay. <laughs> i'm seeing that i i get so i get what carol said what i don't get is the and you have to explain this to me ben the value of looking at the command line get diff i can't use command line i'm get not diff. saying sorry i'm not saying you have to look at it on the command line i'm saying just look at it in two different contexts the command line happens to be the one where i look at it first because i'm i just happen to use the command line to do my git branching and my git diffs and that stuff yeah i do too but the diff uh, it never really looks like anything to me readable Right. I mean, it looks great to me on Git on GitHub, but doesn't look great to me on command line. I, I need it pretty and visual for me. Yeah, me too. I 100%. I don't I would say that I consume the PR much more effectively in GitHub, but there is a gesture for me in being able to do like um a git diff dash dash stat which which will just list out the files. Mhm. And then doing the full git diff and then be able to just like quickly hit the space bar to run through it. It's almost like it gives me a, an emotional bird's eye view. I, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I, I, as I'm saying is I think just being able to see your PR in two different contexts, I think it's just getting your brain to work in two different ways. So give me an example of something you found using git diff on the command line that you said, all right, I need to change this before I push this up and look at it in GitHub. Well, I mean, it's hard 
it's hard to compare to your approach only because it's a little bit. I'm not asking about my approach. I'm asking what you have done. No, no. But I'm saying is that the things that I would catch on the command line are probably also the things that you would catch in GitHub. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that it's allowing me to catch something that I wouldn't catch on GitHub. I'm just saying that it's different perspective on the same thing, which I think has a value. What I'm hearing is that by looking through different lenses at the same thing, it kind of forces your brain to switch modes and you see things differently. You might catch things in one context that you're not going to see in the other. Right. It's because it, it's the experience is completely different. If you think I'm going from my sublime text, which has beautiful syntax highlighting and color coding, and then I go get diff on the terminal and suddenly it's just red and green on black background. And that's showing me a different texture, if you will, of the diff. And then I push it up to GitHub and now it's back to a beautiful syntax, but now it's a side-by-side comparison as opposed to, for example, a stacked comparison that you get in the in the terminal. So it's just you just catch something different. I think you just you just think about things differently, just momentarily. I'm not saying that I spend even minutes looking at the terminal. I mostly do just a quick once over like a cursory glance. Yeah. To make sure that there's nothing crazy that just pops out to me. And then I push to GitHub. I go to GitHub, I create the PR and then I review the PR there. I'm trying to think what value that would have for me. Mm-hmm. The only one would be if I were concerned about what I put in GitHub, because once once it leaves your local, right, that's up there. If, if you need to change something, you got to fix it there and people can see that you fix it. So if I were concerned about that, which I'm not, I'll tell you straight <laughs> I'll out. have to commit so one day it's fine. Yeah, I'm a dash dash force all day. Yeah. Well, I, see, we can't force anymore. Damn it. No. <laughs> So, so I, I would say, based on what you said, unless you can make a better argument, I don't, I don't see any value doing it. That, that first one. That's fair. That's fair. I, I'm going to catch it. I'm going to catch it in GitHub or Bitbucket or whatever I'm working in. So, doing that extra step of doing the stat and then the diff, I'm like, I'll catch it later. I don't need to do that extra step. I think that's fair. And to me, I feel like I always do two checks because I don't push my branch until I've reviewed it. So I look at everything. I go through my what I have staged, what I have sat early staged, and what I have unstaged, and I make sure that the correct code is staged. And then I commit, put my nice pretty message in there, and then I push. And I do the second compare. I feel like most people do two compares always and maybe don't even realize you do it. But the stage isn't, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the stage isn't comparing the code changes. It's comparing the files. In source tree, it does, because when I click on it, it gives me the diff view at the bottom right-hand corner. It says, okay, here's what it was before. Here's what it was after. I can stage by honks. I can stage by just lines. And I can discard. I mess up by constantly turning off white space, um, show white space, because I don't want to see it all like just garbled in there. I only want to see my real changes. And that's when I forget to undo it and I push it up. And now my changes that would have fixed the white space issues aren't in there. So it's another commit. All right, let's carry on then because there's okay. a number of these. Two. <laughs> we spent yeah. a lot of time on one. Trim that one down, Adam. Oh, yeah, I will. I'll cut out everything Tim said. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The second one I think should be short and obvious. Let's see. Oh, man. Uh, But always look at the comments that people left before you merge your PR in. What do you mean? Yeah. Like if, you know, you create the PR, you have someone review it, that person can leave comments on the PR. Oh, and okay. and uh, at least on GitHub, I, I, I they do, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the reason I think that's worth calling out is because not every comment blocks the approval of a PR. 
So just because your PR gets the thumbs up doesn't mean that there are things that might need further consideration. Right. You can leave a comment and then also approve right. in the same yeah. action. And then there are a lot of, let's say, stylistic differences that you might have with the author of the PR where you might leave a comment and say, hey, did you consider this? Or, hey, you're using a really old style of coding. Or, hey, did you know that there's a built-in function that does the same thing that you just did here? Right. Like what you wrote is still good, but there may be a better... Right. Solution yeah, or better, or what you wrote is not going to break. Yeah. So good for you. Thumbs up. But you might want to consider changing it. And if you don't, I don't care. And maybe you want to do it in a subsequent PR because that's just not a priority right now. That's fine. But just because a PR is approved doesn't mean that there aren't comments worth reviewing. Yeah, in our, in our PR comments, so because we're dealing with uh, credit card data, everything has to be, we have to review the OWASP top 10 every time on everything we're changing to make sure that it's not breaking the OWASP. So that is the place where we, we put those comments. Typically, everyone's going to say, I passed it all, but you still got to look at it because auditors are going to look at it. Then you have to also look at the code. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that 100%. Ooh. All right, we're off to a better start now. Good job. Just start with that one. <laughs> All right. Number three, this is probably going to be more team dependent, but the way my team works is what is in the main branch should match or is about to match what's in production. Meaning mm. you never merge into the main branch, something that's going to sit in a local development environment or in GitHub for some period of time that is not minutes in length so that you can always be confident that what is in production matches what's in the main branch when you have to understand why a production system is behaving a certain way, right? You don't want to have to go look in deploy logs to see well, what Git hash had been released to production. Oh, I see what you're saying. Your main branch should be the evidence of what's in production. Do people do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think the way that we work that enforces that is merging is part of the deploy process. Right. right. Like we do the code review and everything's happy. And then the moment that we're ready to deploy, that's when it gets merged. Mm-hmm. And, right. Our, our merge into it. main is what pushes it to the server. So I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. I mean, I guess you could have main sitting there without it being like without it being released to the actual server physically yeah yeah if you don't have that automation i forgot that's a thing ouch and then sort of dovetailing with that is this idea that i think some teams will build up a number of commits in main with the intent that we're going to deploy a bunch of commits together and that's i don't understand that personally but that i think is Mm -mm. is a strategy that some teams have I see it as the approach that you kind of have to use if your deploy process takes right. a while, if right? If it, if it takes you an hour to do a deploy for whatever reason, then you don't want to do that nine times a day. You want to do that, you know, maybe twice a day. So I, I, mean, I guess I could see if we're talking a day's worth of buildup, like everyone's getting all their stuff in for maybe over a day process, because like you said, it takes a while. But I think outside of, I would say a day, you shouldn't be, it shouldn't be off that far. Like I can't imagine trying to debug something and not knowing what's on my server. I agree. Mm -hmm. All right. Next one, which I think sort of dovetails with this one as well, is that no one should deploy your code but you. Meaning that you're big no you're the only one who understands the changes that you've made which means that you're the one who has the instinct for what graphs you should look at what metrics you might want to look at what type of errors might start showing up in the logs now you could argue that a lot of this is maybe automated but right i think that i just think that you the author of the code is the best positioned person to understand the possible effects of code hitting production and they should be the ones doing the deploy can i say no to that big no sure yeah yeah so i would disagree because i feel like people too many hands in the pot is a bad idea too you're gonna have too many people deciding 
on changes that shouldn't be there. I feel like the best solution is that you like what we do where I'm at now. We get in um, a Slack thread. Everyone whose code's going up, we deploy each package. When your package goes out, you check it, make sure things are good, and then you move on. I physically never push a button. I ne- like I can't put anything in, into our main branch. I can't push. I can't do so. I mean, the release does it. We check it, and we're good to go. But as far as having the authority to actually put code in, I think that's a bad idea. So, okay, let me rephrase then, because I think we're I think we're fundamentally saying the same thing. Okay. I'm expressing it. Okay. I'm expressing in a way that our team uses, but what I mean is the person who authored the code should be present and actively engaged with the deployment. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, you do the validation. You're the only one that's going to know if you broke the merge, like if the code didn't merge right, because it may auto merge perfectly fine, but yet it made changes that were not part of what you were expecting to change. Right. Like, I guess what I'm arguing against is this idea, one, that you would put something in main and just walk away and then maybe someone else happens to deploy it later. But even on a similar note, Carol doesn't merge something into main and then goes to Tim and says, hey, Tim, I got to run out to a doctor's appointment. Can you deploy this for me? Like, no, Carol, you can deploy it when you're back from the doctor's appointment. Like, you should be there for the deployment. (laughs) So let me give you an opposite. Okay. Okay. So PCI, which credit cards, you know, we have to follow PCI compliance. The person who writes the code cannot be the same person who deploys the code, cannot be the same person who reviews the code. Really? I mean, I, the, the review I get, but yes. I'm surprised about the deployment. The review, yeah. So it has to be a separate entity that deploys the code. Fascinating. So that is absolutely a non-starter for me. So we, ha- we have to build our things in such a way that, so what, what, I will, what we will do is I will merge it into main. Right, I will locally build it to make sure it it compiles correctly. This is a Scala thing, so it's a compiled code, and then I run my test to make sure it works. And then the other entity, which is our infrastructure team, they have to deploy it separately, and that's just for separation of concerns, so that you don't have a person, a bad actor, who is introducing code to steal credit card information, and then they they review it and approve it, and then they deploy it. So I absolutely cannot do that. So we have to build our entire pipeline around that assumption that the person who's writing the code doesn't deploy it. The only thing we can do is because everything is load balanced is we can deploy it to a node. I can individually check each node and do a smoke test to make sure that everything works. I know what could possibly break based off what was being deployed. Check that and then say, okay, put that in rotation. And then we go through all the nodes and update all those so that there's zero downtime. So they couldn't even do their own smoke testing. The person who wrote the code. No, the person who wrote the code can do the smoke testing. Yeah, See, to definitely. me, that that validates kind of what Ben's saying. Like, to me, that's enough. Like, I've validated yeah. that what went in is good, even though I didn't push a button. But he's using the I'm word involved. deploy. So yeah. Deploy to me means that you are the one who is putting the code in production. And that is that is a separation of concern that I can't right, do. Right. Yeah. And I think because where I work, that is when we talk about deployments, it is actually someone hitting a button. So there's, we don't have examples where I am of a group of people being engaged in a deploy that's being led by one person. But I think that's the intent of that feels the same. Okay. Yeah. I think what you proposed, Tim, agrees with when Ben rephrased after Carol's feedback, say everybody's names. Uh, Yeah. He was saying, you know, the developer is actively engaged in the process of validating the deploy. Right. Validating, but not deploying it. That's fair. It depends on, yeah, your, your different requirements. But I, I don't even have access to production environment because of the, if, if I'm the one working on the code. But that is specific to your industry, right? So True. that doesn't necessarily mean that that should 
by definition be true for everybody all the time. Yeah, I feel like we should throw the caveat in there that I'm fintech too. So like the whole finance market is us too. So a lot of those same regulations mm, are interesting. And why I can't touch things. I think for our SOC compliance, we have to have uh, someone else review the code. And I think that's kind of the extent of the deployment requirements, other than people just not having general access to production. All right. I think the next two might be a little bit more controversial. Uh oh. Code completed is more important than code being written, which means that if you have an open PR on your team, someone should make it a priority to review that PR because that is completed code, ready to be deployed, ready to add value to a user, which means that if a PR sits around open for, I'm just going to throw out an arbitrary number, more than an hour, your team has failed to review that PR. Damn. So explain to me what completed means to you in your world. Theoretically ready to be deployed. Yeah, I mean, a pull request only goes up when it's ready to be merged into main. So I only put the pull request out when my code's done, it's ready for testing, which for us is actually not necessarily into production. It's when we hand it over to QA for testing. But I don't hand my code over to QA until the pull request gets approved. I wait because sometimes people come back and they're like, hey, what'd you think about that? And I don't want to waste QA's time testing. And, and, And I guess one thing to clarify too is that a pull request can act as a good foundation for a conversation with other people, yep. which means that if you, if you push up a PR and the basis of that PR is, hey, I'd like to review this with you to get some feedback, that I think is a different gesture than, hey, I have a pull request that's ready to go. I need someone to review it. Right. That's code complete. Yeah. Right. So to comment on your original assertion that a pull request, some arbitrary number, but a very small number, like if it's been sitting there for one hour, that's too long. I can imagine a context in which that makes sense to have just as sort of a general guideline for the team. But I can also imagine a context because I I work in a context where I don't think that that is a good fit for our team. You know, my whole company, including non-developers, is five people. And on any given day, the three full-time developers and one part-time developer might all four of us be working on different high-priority projects. And so the context switching involved in stopping what you're doing to review somebody else's code is maybe too high a price to pay because the feature could wait until tomorrow to be deployed. And so if I finish my day by reviewing your pull request and you finish your day by reviewing mine, then we have two features that are ready to deploy at the beginning of the day tomorrow that cost nothing essentially in context switching because neither of us was trying to go back to anything when we're done. That's interesting. I, I would I would say that in my experience, people have trouble moving on from a pull request that is done. Meaning, if I have a pull request or my teammate has a pull request that's completed, there's almost an emotional break yep. where they can't now go work on something else because they're like, but I got this code and it's done and it needs to be deployed. So it's like they, they mentally can't let go of that and then open their minds up to working on something else. Yeah, you have to, when you do that, you unload that information, that context from RAM, and it becomes harder to come back and and put yourself back in that state of mind when somebody does have feedback. I get that. Could I ask you to define where is it expected to be deployed? Is it to like a development staging server or production? Uh, I mean, in in my team's context, we only need PRs for production. We can deploy to staging without PRs. Okay. Well, that's a little different because we do pull requests to like, like a staging. 
so that because we need that early review for OWASP.10 kind of thing. Launching to production really is just uh, taking everything that we have and merging it into the main branch. So we're reviewing everything that's going in the lower branches. So it's not the immediacy that is needed. Some stuff can pile up in our context of it's not going to production anytime soon. So right. let's they can pile up and plus you know, like Adam said, it's a smaller team for us as well. It's like I could be in a meeting for an hour, so I'm not going to get to your your pull request that hour. Um, I'll get to it, but yeah. But I think that there's a, a kernel of truth to what Ben is saying is that you don't want to just let something die on the vine either, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, definitely. I think you should have a, a set limit. I just don't think an hour, even a day would work for us. But like Tim said, what we do, and I think I mentioned already, is that we we put the branch up and our QA team actually checks out our branch on a server, on a sandbox, and that's what they test with. So mine's not going into production. And if it is something like we had a bug today that did need to go to production today, well, in Slack, it's all tied together. So when the pull request went up, I just clicked the nudge button. There's a nudge button? There's a nudge button. I have a nudge button in our Slack channel. Oh. It's part of Jira. Oh, I think it's right. Jira or Bitbucket, one of the two. I can tell you in a minute. But yeah, it just nudges everybody on it. All right, next one. And again, this one might be more team dependent. And again, I'll caveat all of this with saying that this is how I feel my particular team works well. And everybody's mileage may vary. So next one. Pull requests are not the responsibility of an on-call engineer or a hero engineer, but they're the responsibility of all members on the team. And whoever can get to the PR first or whoever is, let's say, has the particular skill set for reviewing a PR, that that's their responsibility. I know some teams operate on this rotation where it's like Joe's doing all the PRs this week and then Steve's doing all the PRs next week. Like, no, everyone's doing the PRs all the time. Yeah, I've never been on a team like that where you took rotation. Ours is skill set, number one, and availability. So, yeah. and there's two people on the team. One of them have to approve everything for just sign off. So the lead and the engine, the director of engineering. So one of them have to be on sign off. But other than that, we go based off of who knows the area I'm changing the best. I'll put three or four people on it. And then I add a couple people who I think <laughs> don't have light load, like heavy loads. And then once I have three sign off, off it goes. All right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes the review might be not my area. Right. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Maybe, there. maybe at so and so should look at right. this. Yeah. And all right, not all of these are controversial. Awesome. I I agree. Yeah. Nope. I totally agree. How about you, Adam? Can you repeat the question? <laughs> <laughs> not that I wasn't listening, but I when you started talking on, and I went down right, this right. rabbit hole, and I've forgotten the original question. I, I just that the PR is the responsibility of the team, not of any on-call engineer, for example. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's tough to translate a lot of this to us because we're a smaller company. And I I mean, I've worked on bigger teams before, but that was the last job I had was, gosh, almost 10 years ago. Trying to remember if we were on Git or if that was all subversion. If I can repeat what I think Ben is saying is like, sometimes there's a designated person. It's their job to review the PR, right? Rather than the team. Right. Yeah. And so in that case, that person reviewing it, they might not know anything about it. So they're just rubber stamping it. Mm -hmm. So really, you need to have everyone involved on it, even if some of them might not, you know, so even on a small team, you might have some people who only know a certain section of the code. They see a PR and realize this isn't my wheelhouse and they defer to the other person. But if they're the one on call, they're the only one who can approve it. And they're like, well, it looks good to me. I don't (laughs) see syntax errors. I don't see, you know, XSS, you know, injection code here. Fine. Stamp it. Let's go. Yeah. I think that's what you're saying, Ben. Yep. Yep. I think so. All right. Kudos. I totally agree with that. All right. 
This one, this next one seems strange, but something I've actually run into before. Never review a PR until you're actually asked to review a PR. I know that sounds crazy, (laughs) but if you think about there are all kinds of integrations that people have where new PRs show up in Slack channels or you get alerts Mm -hmm. from them or something. People use PRs for different reasons. Like we're talking almost at the top of the show. I like to review things in different contexts. And one of those contexts is the PR. You're talking about you might push a PR and you find changes and then you need to go back and make changes and you're pushing the PRs again. Um, The PR is not a meaningful piece of work until someone goes to you and asks you to review it, which if I can then add one more addendum to that, I think GitHub recently added this ability to mark PRs as being in draft mode, which to me, I'm like, that solves no problems because it was in draft until I asked you to review it. (laughs) So I was actually thinking about draft mode when you were talking about the when you would want to create a pull request for the purpose of having a discussion with somebody mm. to show them your code and get their feedback. I think that would be a good use case for the draft mode. True. So, that, so that somebody doesn't come along and say, oh, okay, I'll, you know, I have some time now. Uh, I'll go, go ahead and review this. I hear you. That sounds almost more like miscommunication happened. But I mean, draft mode sort of says, yeah, I know it's not fully complete yet. I still want some feedback. I don't fully expect you to pull this in, but I get your, I mean, that's sort of an ambivalent state. It's not really a pull request. It's sort of a, hey, look at this request. It's still a draft, which if I'm not paying attention to my white space, it, that's probably what I'm doing. Our um, kind of common agreed upon thing is once the pull request goes up, if there's no reviewers on it, then you know it's sitting there because people are just having conversation. So if there is a reviewer on it, then sure. Like if we've added three or four people on it, then it's open and ready to go. But if it's just created, but there's no reviewers yet, then I'm having a conversation on the side and someone's pulling my branch and we're going to make some changes together or we're just going to talk it through. Once reviewers go on it, we're good to go. So when you say reviewers on it, do you mean an assignment of yeah. a reviewer or, yeah. okay, so you're not talking about the completed review? No, no, no. I'm talking about the pull okay. request went up and I hit the create button. And now it shows Mm -hmm. sitting there and people can approve it, but there are physically zero reviewers on said pull request. I can still decline it at that point, or I can just go hit the edit button and add reviewers once I know that I'm ready to go with it. So you use that uh, in GitHub, it's request review. I don't know what it is in Bitbucket, but specifically sort of send this to somebody, notify Tim, I'd like you to review this, please. Yeah, I only push it up once I'm having a conversation with someone. So I just grab the URL and (laughs) post it in Slack. Go to this link. You said that earlier in a different uh, one of Ben's commandments about not pushing until you like you're ready for review. And the thought went through my mind at that moment. And it just reminded me that I push almost every time I commit hmm. because I, I, I view that as an insurance policy. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. if my house were to get hit by a nuclear bomb between commits, like somebody's going to have the <laughs> access to my branch there. Right. Like I love that. And see, I'll push my branch, but I don't push to the pull request. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I don't put in pull requests early. Yeah, yeah, I don't create a pull request, but yeah, I push my branch up. Well, sometimes often. I actually don't. I take that back. Undo what I just said. I don't push that often. I <laughs> push all the time. All right. This next one is not going to be true 100% of the time, but I think it should be true more often than it is false. Your PRs should be small. I feel like if it takes someone more than 15 minutes to review a PR, you have way too much stuff in it. You have not decomposed your problem into smaller problems effectively wrong (laughs) so i'm gonna have to disagree i think fight him the i think that i can understand why you'd say that because you have the feature flag ability to like deploy code you know make a pull request and deploy code and have it be literally dark right like not reachable and the rest of the world that doesn't have that privilege 
know, when we deploy a new feature, that feature is going out and, and it's, if it's not reachable, it's executable, mm-hmm. right? Like you might not have a URL hooked up to that service method or whatever, but it's, it's there and it's hot. And I think as the author of many enormous pull requests, <laughs> uh, you know, there, sometimes there's just no getting around it. Like, you know, you're, you're adding this whole I was starting to say, like, you know, you're adding a whole module and it's got a whole bunch of different features. And I get that. Like, maybe the argument against where I was going is that, okay, well, maybe you should be deploying more often so that you have, okay, just the the homepage of that module is visible. And then you deploy another feature later that's, you know, the the reports view and another re- another deploy for each individual report as you as you work on them sort of thing but the feature flag i mean you, you are right that my team operates heavily yeah. with feature flags and that does change the the calculus if you will of when things can go out i will say i wish that i could agree if i had a, a reasonable expectation that no pull request review will ever take more than 15 minutes then I would be much more inclined to agree with the idea that pull requests should be reviewed more or less immediately. Ah, that's interesting. Okay, that makes sense. I love that. I think that because the pull requests that we're doing aren't associated with production, ours are typically smaller. They can be big, to be honest, but they're typically smaller because they're reviewed before they're going to production. So there's it's more a unit of work kind of review rather than it is a, an entire feature review. Does that make sense? Yeah. So. so like each one of your like smaller sets of work is its own branch or something? Yes, I guess. That's where I struggle is I end up with one branch that's containing like, you know, all this big work we were doing. Like the core logic is in the base branch. So then I can't do a pull request on each commit, I don't think. So it's hard to break out sometimes the big features if you don't have like, you know, the functionality that you were talking about with releasing smaller subsets of work. Yeah, I, I think that's that's it, it, it's, you guys are making a good point, I think, because my team has the ability to deploy things that aren't necessarily activated, per se. Right. It, it can change the way that things are done, which is why we need an episode on that. Yeah. Oh, my God, please. So ready. I'm ready. 24 hours a day. I'm ready. So ready. <laughs> <laughs> this is just sort of a asterisk here on this statement as well, is that if you have a large sweeping change that isn't necessarily functional feature related, I would try to always do that as a completely separate deploy. Meaning you're upgrading a framework or Adam's talked about, I'm coming into a project. I need to apply prettier to this project that's never had it before. Like you're doing that as its own deploy. Sure. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. And like you're not doing that plus feature work in the same PR. No, 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 no. Yeah. That's evil. All right. Can I jump in and, and throw out one of my own here that I just thought of? Oh, please. So if you're working on, a, like, say, a feature branch, and while you're working on that, you kind of come up with this, either maybe you're fixing a problem or you come up with some other separate feature, but that secondary idea that and this has happened to me many times, like I'm, I'm working on a feature and I come up with this other thing that I need to do and that my the feature that I'm working on, my project can benefit from. And so often it's so tempting to just sort of slip it in with that feature that I'm working on. And then for whatever reason, like maybe that project has to go on a back burner because something urgent came up or something like that. And then all of a sudden you find yourself like needing that feature elsewhere. And so I guess the the thesis of my commandment that I'm adding here is that in that situation, you have to have the diligence to set your branch aside and go off and create another branch for this separate feature so that it can be reviewed and deployed separately and so that then you could rebase or merge it into your feature branch as well if you need to make use of it there. Yep. 1,000%. Agree. Yeah, it's a good yes. point. Have you guys all been bitten by that as well? Oh, yeah. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I would add that I think another expression of that 
is that sometimes I will start a feature that I think is a manageable sized feature. And then I realize it's actually much bigger than I thought of. And I will then see if I can stop and be like, well, actually, I can do this smaller part as its own thing, deploy that, and then be able to come back and do this other thing. And, and I know that sounds like a feature flag type thing, but <laughs> here a very, very recent non-feature flag thing is we used to use a service called Optimizely, which allowed us to run, I guess, sort of A-B style testing in their application. But we stopped mm-hmm. using it a couple of years ago, but there was still a lot of code left in the application that used this. It was a sort of a dynamically injected JavaScript file, and there was a lot of code that would check to see if this object existed and do certain things. So I had created a ticket to just remove all of the Optimizely code. And as I started to get into it, I realized that there were huge experiments like over here for signups and then over here for onboarding and over here for tours within the application. And as I started to see the breadth of this thing unfold, I was like, no, this is not one ticket anymore. And then I'd be like, all right, I'm going to set this aside. I'm going to rebranch off of the main thing. And I'm going to say, okay, this is just removing the optimizely onboarding experiment. I'd get that. Then I'd rebase my original branch or I'd go back to main and then say, okay, now this is just the experiment for the in-app tours. And I would deploy that. So I could start to deploy the removing of optimizely incrementally once I realized it was a lot larger than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, because I mean, you have to look at it from the viewpoint of the reviewer, right? So if you're, if it's related to a particular feature or a ticket that you have and you're doing all this other stuff that seems unrelated, they're like, what are you doing? What, what, what am I reviewing here? I don't understand right. the parameters that you're trying to fulfill here. I don't know how, what this code line here has to do anything with this feature or ticket that you're working. So you're helping them out by not going rogue and saying, oh, while I'm here, I'm going to do this, right? You say, no, I have the discipline. I'm going to stop, make another ticket, do it or that. Just do this work here if I can. So that way when they review it, they're not, they're not having to slack you and say, so you're working on this. Why did you delete all this stuff over here? Totally. I don't get it. What's your purpose? Particularly when you're dealing with financial systems, you're like, your intention was this. Why are you doing X and Y? I can't tell you how many times I'll see a PR where someone's working on a feature. And then as part of that feature, they also go and like change the favicon that was included in a bunch of pages. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, well, I just I, I keep forgetting to do that. I'm like, well, then do that yeah. as its own thing. Don't open yep. a ticket. Yeah. Don't make me review three different things in one PR. I will say as an aside, though, sometimes it's hard when you're working on trying to work on multiple things and you're on a commit and you're like, oh, I'll just change this here, too. It's like, oh, crap. <laughs> I just really combined a couple of things on this. Um, I don't know how to undo this. I'm just going to push it up and put a comment and say, you know, I explain why I did it. Right. I mean, it's sometimes really hard when you're context switching mm-hmm. between between issues right. to put everything in the right. We're commit. Not perfect. So I get yeah. that it's not a perfect world. Yeah, I mean, like sometimes adding a feature requires a slight page redesign. Right. And so then you have the question of like, okay, well, now do I do a pull request first to make the page redesign to support the feature that I will be adding next time? Or do I add the feature in a way that kind of looks ugly and is shoehorned into the current design and then come back and do the redesign later? Or do I just do it all at once? I think to me, and this is just an opinion, that feels cohesive enough to me. I'm talking about things where like someone will be redesigning the login page, but then also changing the JVM settings. And you're like, well... (laughs) that's totally unrelated yeah because then i'm sitting there researching trying to figure out why you made that change and why i don't understand how what you change like relates to the login and i feel like an idiot (laughs) i will say that sometimes having a pr that is explicitly a collection of small changes i think that's okay like you get to the end of the week and you have a bunch of little tickets that were sitting around and you're like 
each of these tickets is four lines of code. I'm just going to knock them all out together. And then the PR is a collection of small changes. So that doesn't, yes, it's pretty, like I could see it happening, but that doesn't work so well when you need to hand all four off to QA for testing. Mm. And now one's approved, three hasn't even made it to a QA yet. That one's ready to release and you have to tell them, no, it can't go because now I'm holding three other working items in there with it. So you definitely have to make sure you're balancing what can go out to. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point about QA. So we all agree you should be doing code review and pull requests, all right? Even if you're not doing what's technically a pull request, you should at least be doing code reviews like before you move code into production. Yeah, absolutely. I agree it is necessary. I will also admit that as a an administrator on our GitHub account, I have for certain repos the ability to bypass the uh, review requirement and in a pinch I will use it. I get a review if at all possible, but you know, if it's the middle of the night and I'm fixing a bug and you know it's a one-line thing, a semicolon got forgot somewhere, like I'm not going to wake somebody up to get a code review on a, adding a semicolon where there was one obviously missing. I'm just going to yeah. do it or I'm not sure whether or not I want to admit this. I, I was going to say, you know, I'll, sometimes I'll just remote desktop onto the server and change it right there. It's not even in the repo. <laughs> oh, man. You just get conflicts. Um, how about this? How about if I just read the last few and then okay. any discussion that's worth having we can have. After. Sure, yeah, let's do it. All right. You should clean up your PR before you have it reviewed. Meaning that if you have a bunch of crap still working on it or this isn't working or trying something new. I, your commit log should not be an expression of the development process. It should be an expression of the evolution of the application and commits like crap. It's still not working. That doesn't express the evolution of the application. That's just noise that went through your process locally. Hmm. So I'm a huge fan of squashing or rebasing however you do that kind of stuff. I need to get better at that because I would tend to agree with you, but I have many commits verified to my name uh, (laughs) that are like FML Mm -hmm. or... And and to be clear, I do have those locally. They just, that's not what ends up in the PR. I try my best not to, but sometimes when I squash or when I do make those changes, all of a sudden I end up with something bad happening and I lose my code. So then I'm like, Mm. hell no. Uh-uh. <laughs> you get my commits. Nobody cares. We don't look at commit history anyways, really. Yeah. If I was going to push back on this sentiment at all, it would be that the commit messages are there for the benefit of the developers, right? not the product or the management team or anything. And so like, I agree with you in sentiment, but I think that it's not a critical path type thing. I mean, ultimately, it's the final diff that matters. All right. Where possible and applicable, always include a screenshot or a GIF of UI changes. Don't ever expect someone to pull your code down and actually run it. That if there's a big visual change, you should have a representation of that in the PR. I like that. I just don't do it. I do it. Instead of a GIF, I will often include a short video. And then for anything that is not like worthy of a rubber stamp, you know, not that we do rubber stamps, but, you know, if it's at all complex, I will push it to one of our QA servers. And, and I'll just be like, this is where you can go test it. You fancy. So you don't have to do the work of of uh, merging yourself and, and all that and be like, I've done the work for you. And here's a URL with a, a sample record where that has the problem that this is fixing or whatever. And you can go see it for yourself. That's actually really good. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I might, I might adopt that. All right. Every PR should be associated with a ticketing system, whether that's JIRA for us or whatever. Yep. 
ticketing system. I, I like the idea that everything links back to an external, I don't want to call it a source of truth, but an external indication of why this work has been done. And then you can depend on the JIRA system or the Basecamp URL or something to then provide further explanation as to why it's happening. But I would say on the flip side to that, you should treat your PR message as if there is no external source of truth, yeah. that your JIRA system might not exist in two years. You may have moved on to Basecamp or someone's JIRA board may have been deleted accidentally, that your PR message should explain why you're doing the things that you're doing in the code. I look at the, the PR message as the um, in internet speak, the TLDR. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right, the executive summary of of what it is. But if you really want the dirty history, right, you go to the ticket, right? Because typically there's like comments from the developers, from QA, sometimes from customers. You can get the dirty history of why this thing happened the way it happened. I was gonna say on one recently, I threw in one of the customer notes just because I knew that the PR was gonna get not approved and there was gonna be feedback <laughs> from it because it went completely against what the original request was. And I was like, hey, but here's the conversation that says it's actually one day, not six days. So mm. just know it's actually one day. I was originally gonna say that I disagreed with this one because of the the way that it's a blanket statement, right? You said every PR should have uh, an issue attached to it. And then you kind of rephrased and you said an external, would you say an external source of source of truth truth or motivation or whatever. And that softened me on it because I was thinking, okay, well, a lot of ours, you know, we'll just link to the, we have a a bug log. Every exception gets logged. And so I'll link to those with maybe a description of what the problem was and, and what I did to fix it sort of thing. Or we have a ticketing system in our product and we'll link to those. And then the only thing that that really left for me is like a new feature, new product, new module, whatever. And I mean, I guess at that point you could link to like the spec or you could transfer parts of the spec into a ticket if you're going to create from that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, we have a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It depends on your workflow. We we don't have a, a hard and fast workflow for new development mm-hmm. of stuff. Sometimes it's in a Google Doc. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. in a ticket. Sometimes it's in a spreadsheet because we're sharing that with the customer. And one thing that I would point out is that sometimes, for example, in the middle of an incident where you're doing emergency work, that you can always fill out your ticket later. Even if I have to deploy a hot fix in the middle of an incident. Mm. I'll create an empty ticket in Jira, grab the ticket number, put it in the commit so that later I can go into Jira and say, we had an incident. I had to do a hot fix. Here's a link to the Slack message where this is being discussed in the incident channel. And then that way, my PR almost retroactively points to something that's more meaningful. Right. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, because because, yeah, the ticket itself is ongoing. It can it can outlive the life of the of the actual commit, right? So if there's issues later, that ticket can document totes. All right. I think I only have like one or two left here. All right. This one, I don't know how to phrase this one exactly. The role of the PR reviewer is not to ensure the success of the code. That theoretically, unless you're sharing a PR specifically to get feedback and have a discussion, that you should be as confident in your code before someone looks at the PR as after they look at the PR. You don't ever want to think of your PR review as someone's going to catch the bug that you were worried might be in the code. That's not their responsibility. Their responsibility is to maybe catch red flags, to give you feedback on maybe architectural decisions, but you don't want them to be a a safety valve, essentially, to the code that's about to go out. To be clear, they should but you shouldn't be counting on it. Right. I think it's it's too much. Um, if a bug hits production, it's not because someone didn't catch your mistake. It's because you deployed a problem. I would agree with that. All right. And last one. 
the names of your branches are meaningless. If you're spending time like trying to craft the perfect branch name, that's time wasted. No one looks at your branch name. Hmm. If you want to put your ticket number in your branch name, that's up to you. But like literally no one is looking at your branch names. I would pick whatever is easiest for you to understand and shortest to type. But follow your team standard. Like we have to. There should be no standard. No, well, we do. We, we do because in Jira on the right hand side, we have a branch section. And as long as you make the branch, that first part of your ticket number, which is like BP-12345. It'll always link on the right-hand side, so I never have to go look. Oh, that's interesting. Same. If I go help someone, I pick up their work. I don't have to know what they name their branch. I just go to the branch section and click the branch, and their branch is open. Yeah, so the naming convention is very important for, for us as well. So you, you have to have the ticket name right. because the ticketing system picks it up. It knows about it knows about the commit when you commit it because there's a connection between we use um, we, we use Jira, and it, it's connected to the repo. So whenever you put that ticket name in it, it goes, this is part of it, and therefore it's in the ticket. See, so. I think that when we've integrated with ticketing systems, having the ticket number in the PR message, I think has historically been sufficient. I guess it, I, I think it might all, it obviously depends on the integration. Yeah. Ours is all based off the branch and then any mm. PR that opens against that branch is then associated to the ticket. I agree with your original sort of thesis was that like if you're spending a bunch of time trying to think of what the perfect branch name is, that's wasted time. Don't do it. I think that's all of them. So I have, so, you know, just a handful of opinions about some stuff. It's, it's not actually all of them, but I think it's the meaningful ones. Well, does anybody have anything else to talk about with pull requests and code reviews and stone tablets? No, I'm just, I'm just shocked that, that I had no idea we would go this long on this topic. Yeah. <laughs> ben definitely had some feelings, huh? Strong opinions, weekly held. I think that's the key here. Okay, well, before we move on into Patreon, I told you guys earlier that we had our first iTunes review, and I would like to read it to you now. Yay! What? Mm-hmm. A reviewer? So, Please be a hater. So excited. so excited. Please be a hater. Come on. So this is uh, by somebody named Jacob Fiff, if I'm reading that right. I apologize. The, the text size is kind of small, and I can't make iTunes bigger. But it looks like it's from Jacob Fiff. The title is super enjoyable, and it says, I'm really enjoying this podcast. The format is great to listen to, and it feels real as they talk about things that I can relate to having experienced. I'm always learning something new from listening. So thanks for your awesome insights and keep up the great work. And I'm going to click. Uh, there's a little line under this that says, was this review helpful? I'm clicking yes. Yeah. Yes. That was awesome. Thank you, Jacob. You're not a hater, but I'll take it. <laughs> Got the warm fuzzies. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the review. So uh, if you guys think that we've earned it, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We have several people helping us keep the lights on in there, and we really appreciate their support. If that's something that you're interested in, you can find us at patreon.com slash workingcodepod. There's perks available at different support tiers, like an invite to our Discord server, early access to new episodes, and our after show that we're getting ready to record. And basically what that is, is we just keep the mics running for another 10 to 15 minutes. And uh, sometimes we keep going on the same topic as the show. Sometimes we talk about something totally random and different and sometimes secret. It gets crazy sometimes, yo. Our top tier on our Patreon is for people who want to pay a little bit extra for, I guess, little more than us saying their names on every episode in return. Like Monty Chan. Yeah, right now we only have one top supporter and his name is Monty Chan. So Monty, thank you for your continued support. You beautiful legend. And <laughs> for everybody else on Patreon and everybody that's uh, not pa- not on Patreon and just listening, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for everything. Without listeners, we'd just be four weirdos recording our conversations for no reason. Three weirdos. Yeah, I mean, we're still four weird weirdos, but we have a reason for recording our conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyway, on our way out here, don't forget to share the show with a friend because there's no better support than a word-of-mouth referral. Tell the algorithms to boost our signal by leaving us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your topic suggestions on Twitter or Instagram at Working Code Pod. We'll catch you next week. And until then, your heart matters. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code. Okay, so before we move on, how many more of these you got? Because it's... Uh... <laughs> Holy <laughs> right? crap. It's almost 10. He isn't even yawning. He's happy. Did I not speak fluently? Is that why? Yeah, I'm going to cut all of that out. You're going to have like eight <laughs> words in your... <laughs> yeah. Can you just do it again, Tim? Start over. <laughs> you look so sad. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's just when I was listening to the last the recording of the last episode, Adam at one point says something like, well, we didn't think we'd be talking for an hour, but we've already been talking for an hour. And I look at the clock and it was like 36 minutes into it. <laughs> I'm like, how much of this was cut? <laughs> All my content. He cut all mine.